0: I-94 on Lumpen Radio.
1: Welcome once again to another edition of I-94, here live on Lumpin' Radio, WLPN Chicago. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker, and as always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen.
2: Good morning.
1: And Mr. Michael Sack. Good morning. And through the miracle of technology, we are joined today from Pittsburgh by the author Disha Philyaw. She is the author of The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, is out now from West Virginia University Press, and it was nominated for the National Book Award. Disha, thanks so much for joining us today. Good
3: morning. Thanks for having me.
1: We really appreciate it. And again, congratulations on being nominated. That's such a huge thing, uh, especially for a book of short stories. I, I think that's kind of out of left field. So really great accomplishment. Thank you. So Thank let, you. if we could start there, actually, I wanted to talk to you a little bit because this is a collection of short stories that you wrote over, I'm assuming a period of a couple of years. And uh, The short story form is actually one that I have tremendous affection for. But short stories as a form seem to be kind of going out of style. There aren't that many places you can publish them. I mean, as I'm sure you know, you know, The New Yorker is really one of the Mm -hmm. few major uh, kind of middle-brow places you can still get a story published. And if you get a short story published in The New Yorker, you're doing very, very well indeed. (laughs) Um, Can you talk a little bit about why you embraced the, the short story?
3: So, the short stories in this collection as a whole were um, actually a detour from writing a novel, a novel that has, you know, stumped me for about 13 years now. Um, And so I was, I kind of hit a wall and I really wasn't, I got about two thirds of the way done with the novel. And I have a a literary agent from um, a nonfiction book that I published in 2013 um, with my ex-husband. It's a book about co-parenting. And so that agent, um, since 2013, she'd been like, you know, when that novel's ready, I'm ready. Um, and it just was never ready. And so I, I started writing these short stories. Um, and my agent would come to events where I was doing readings. And after one of the events, she said, you know, I'm really enjoying these church lady stories. I wasn't thinking of that thread um, through them. I mean, if I think if I had to sort of name what I've been writing for the last 20 years, I've been writing about dissatisfied women, um, but they many of them are church ladies or what I call church lady adjacent um, uh, because I, you know church ladies live in my memory. They're part of the, this deep nostalgia I have for where and how I grew up in the South and I grew up in the church. Um, and so um, I wasn't really thinking of them as church ladies, but that's a thread that my agent saw and she suggested that I kind of follow that thread. What if I got really intentional about writing a set of stories um, and I could always come back to the novel? And that just felt right. Um, it felt doable. Um, it's not that it's easier to write a collection than to write a novel. It's you know different skill sets in some ways, um, but it just felt less daunting. And so I turned to short stories and in um, a collection. And I didn't really think a lot about marketability. I knew, you know, everybody will tell you short story collections are a hard sell. Um, but I try not to think about market things when I'm writing. So I just dove right in.
2: I I appreciate that that you said that about you know not worrying about the market things. I think so much publishing now is just based on like how many how many units we're going to sell and how even as a
0: writer, it's impossible to look anywhere without saying like, here are the tips, make your own website. Yeah.
2: But I, what I I was going to mention. So I, I do a lot of the the books. I pick a lot of the books on the show. I mean, I'm not the end all be all, but I I do it all based on reviews. And I read Mm -hmm. phenomenal reviews of this collection. And I also read uh, some interviews that you did. And then the, I was fascinated that you did a co-parenting book with your ex-husband. Was he your ex-husband when you wrote the book? So did you guys do it together afterwards, or were you still together?
3: No, we had divorced, and um, people would compliment us and say stuff like, you're the poster children for divorce, you know, which (laughs) nobody really sets out to be. Um, But, you know, I think it was more of a comment on, like, us being civil us, you know, being, um, you know, kid first in terms of, you know, what kind of uh, what, what were we going to show our children and what we wanted to show our children. We love them more than anything else and that our love for them was greater than our, you know, the things that led to our divorce. Um, And so unfortunately, that's just not typical. And so people would comment on it and they would say, oh, you guys should write a book. And so my ex said to me, yeah, you know, you're a writer, you should write a book. And then I said to him, but, you know, I think it would be more compelling if it was the both of us doing it together. Um, And so then it was like, oh, how do we write a nonfiction book? (laughs) Because I had no idea. Um, And so talking about the market, though, I mean... I wouldn't advise writing, worrying about you know what's going to sell necessarily. But when you are trying to sell a book, there are certain market things that publishers will ask for when you're developing a book proposal, and that's real. Um, so we needed to build a platform. You know, nobody knew who we were, um, so we spent a few years on social media. We had a podcast, we had a blog, um, and just really branding ourselves um, around the topic of co-parenting and parenting after divorce. Um, And so we ended up doing it together. And I think that's what made us kind of stand out. And we didn't write a book that said, Hey, look at us. Aren't we great? We were, (laughs) we talked to people who were struggling and we wanted to know what did they need in a book? You know, what could be, we wanted things to be practical. We wanted to be encouraging. Um, We really wanted to change the conversation around um, parenting across two households. And I think we did that.
2: That's amazing. The reason I inquired, I, just, I come from a very, I, I grew up in the, from a very bitter divorce. My parents couldn't, wouldn't speak to each other 30 years later. So when I was reading yeah. about that, I was like, wow, that's phenomenal. And it's also, it's like very grown up, you know, like to be able to do yeah. something like that. I, I just, I was, uh, uh, and I didn't want to get away from uh, the secret lives of church ladies. But there was one thing I did want to uh, talk about in one of your stories. There's always a Whenever we do a show, no, not all the time, but whenever we read books that we really like, I like to talk about there's certain paragraphs uh, or lines that really uh, just resonated with me. And this is from um, Peach Cobbler. And I thought this was just like the best description of God I think I've ever heard. And it was, all of this cemented my understanding of God as a twisted puppet master watching his creations bounce around, trapped and tangled up in tragedies for his amusement and uh
0: slayer fan
2: <laughs> and uh just when when i read that it was just like that is so spot on and it just it it really resonated with me and one of the things i love about um reading all kinds of different fiction is you know it's a it's a it's escape for me and i can go into a, you know i i i haven't hung out mm-hmm. with a lot of black church ladies so it's like it's a it's a new world for me to explore And um, I mean, I do, I mean, I have a lot of friends that go to church, I suppose, but I'm not immersed in it. And um, I just, you know, it was a a nice um, way for me to learn something about other people that I might not have been able to do in any other way. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just following on that,
1: I I wanted to talk about that a little bit because I I think, um, you know, obviously regular listeners to the show know we're three white schmoes here in in Chicago— You know, uh, the black church culture uh, is very big in Chicago. I don't think there's any question about that. But it's not necessarily something that is exposed to outsiders at all. So could you talk a little bit about why the church is so central to so many African-American lives? Because that is something that is running through the book. So many decisions that the characters Mm -hmm. make are because— they are deeply religious or they're very involved with a church or a church group uh, in, in ways that are both negative and positive.
3: As is the case for so many things for black folks, uh, black Americans, you know, it goes back to slavery and even further back to Africa. Um, slavery was uh, forced. I'm sorry, not slavery, but Christianity was forced upon um, enslaved people by their white owners Um partly as a way to, um, civilize them or to also to, to, to placate them. You know, don't worry about your lot in life in this world. You know, your reward is after death in heaven, you know, just stay cool. Um, but of course we know, you know, uh, enslaved people, um, were uh, uh, not a monolith. And, you know, some of Christianity was at the root of some slave rebellions. Um, and so, you know, it comes down to, as many things do, interpretation. And then after, um, and, and then we know, too, that enslaved people incorporated traditional um, African spiritual practices, wove it into the Christianity. You know, we we just are... Inventive like that, and so what we see is a black church. um, You know, you see those expressions, you see it in the music or hear it in the music. You see it in the rituals and things like that. So after um, emancipation, what we saw was this: the church as an organizing space, as a, a social space, as a space. To um, for education, this is these were the first schools where um, formerly enslaved people learned to read. These were the um, first uh, historically black colleges and universities started as churches, and then or started in churches rather. And then we know, of course, the church was the at the cornerstone of the civil rights movement. And so, um, you know, it was always um, such a part, a big part of our lives um, in the South. And then as People migrated, you know, north and west as well, um, and so it still has that hold. Um, even as church membership declines um, um, for Black and white folks, um, there's still um, you still feel the effects of the church, even if you yourself aren't a church goer. Um, in a lot of what we learn in terms of how we present ourselves, and what I a challenge in the book, these binaries of being good or not good, being holy um, or not, being a sinner or being a saint. And, you know, binaries just don't work for most people.
0: I wanted to pick up on on what you were talking about, Jeremy, um, as far as the book being a portal to another world, fiction in general, being able to do that. And uh, it reminds me of a lot of the stories in this book where characters are either curious about what the inside of other people's homes look like or are guarded against other people coming into their homes and seeing what what's going on inside their homes. Um, and that made me think... And these are people who are of the same community. They might be on different social strata as far as um, wealth, but uh, they're, they're generally in the same community. And it made me think of how... Uh, well, how true that is! How much I think like that, and I don't even realize it half the time. And uh, but also how the best fiction, to me, um, writers bring out those things that are sometimes you don't you don't want to talk about all the time. And it f- it felt like there was that ran through this book as well. As not being afraid of taboo was um, was that a goal for you? Was it something you had to break through when you were writing?
3: Yes, absolutely. Not, it wasn't necessarily a break, something I had to break through, but it was something I was certainly intentional about, which is this idea of hiding, um, this idea that we have to hide our true selves or our true desires because they fly in the face um, of what the church teaches us is acceptable or what the church teaches us we should long for and sh- or, or shouldn't long for. And so there's a certain kind of freedom Um, or pursuit of freedom when you stop hiding um, or when you can whisper those secrets um, to someone else or to yourself. And I felt like we were, what I wanted to do was enter into those secret places, those hidden places where black women um, share things, um, the things that they only share, that we only share with each other or even just keep to ourselves, our interior selves.
1: Well, I think this is a good point to actually um, hear a piece of Disha's book. We want to thank our reader, as always, that is Ms. Shanna Van Volt. And we want to thank the International Anthem Recording Company who provided us this week with the music from Rob Mazurik. He's got a new album out. We're going to hear a selection from uh, Disha's short story, Eula, and they're going to be right back in conversation with her after this short little interlude.
4: About an hour later, I wake up still drunk. Eula's up, drinking from the last bottle of Andre. She has muted the TV, but I can tell Dick Clark is introducing some little white girl with multicolored hair who had a hit early last year. Can't remember that child's name, and I guess it really doesn't matter. She can't dance to save her life and can't sing a lick. I have a New Year's resolution, Eula says, her eyes half-closed. If I'm still alone come Valentine's Day, it will be the last one I spend without a man who belongs to me and me only. That's a pretty big resolution, I say, reaching for the bottle. The sting of her saying she's alone doesn't roll off me as quickly as it usually does. What do you plan to do? Like Pastor says, the Lord can't steer a parked car. I need to position myself to meet someone and prepare a place in my life for a husband. Meaning? For starters, I've been slacking off going to Bible study. If I want a godly man, I need to be in the right places. You meant reset Bible study. Eula rolls her eyes. I'm going to redecorate my house, she continues. There's no room for a man the way it is now. I want to make space for a husband. Sort of like Feng Shui. Feng what? Never mind. I think about Eula being busy with all these man-finding activities while I do what? Entertain the occasional married boyfriend? Spend next New Year's Eve without her? I want to change too, but I have no plan. I'm going to join the single softball team at church, Eula says. You don't even like sports, I say, laughing. Laugh all you want, Eula adjusts the pillows behind her back. But you need to get with the program, too. Carletta, you don't want someone to come home to? Someone to spend your life with? Don't you want to be happy? I look at Eula, her no longer fresh ringlet stamp from the time spent between my legs. As I think about her question, something both cool and pitiful churns inside me and threatens to spill out. Since when does she know or care anything about my happiness? Anything at all about it? I am happy. I say, coaxing my voice out to sound braver than I actually fear. Right now. Right here. With you. And it doesn't have to be this one night. We could... Carletta, I hope you haven't given up on finding you a husband. I'm on a mission and you can be too. Eula sounds flat, like the world's most exhausted sales lady. She scoots away from me to the edge of the bed, looking at the TV. Eula, turn around and look at me. Please. Eula shakes her head. To the TV, she says. I don't want to die a virgin. Do you want to die a virgin? I guess I wait a beat too long to respond. Eula whips around to face me. You aren't? I don't know what's funnier, that Eula thinks my 40-year-old ass hasn't had sex with a man in all these many years, or that she still considers us both virgins after all we've done together in those same years. Eula. You? with some dirty-ass man? Eula clamps her hand over her mouth. In that moment, Sunday school teacher Eula snatches the reins from biology teacher Eula. You aren't clean? Eula. I expect her to grab her clothes and bolt, but she doesn't. She just sits on the bed, her body racked by sobs. It wasn't supposed to be this way, she cries over and over again. I'm not even sure what it is. Me with men? Her with me? Life? Eula, what way was it supposed to be? She turns around and faces me. I just want to be happy, she sobs, and normal. And that was a
1: short section uh, from Disha Philyaw's new short story, Eula. It is contained in her book, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. It is out now from West Virginia Press. You know, that that story, uh, actually, uh, I'm the person that chooses what, what readings we do here. And, you know, one of the things that struck me all through this story was how characters mirrored one another's actions, intentionally or not intentionally. Uh, There's a story uh, in the book, Peach Cobbler, about a young woman and her mother. Her mother is uh, having an affair with the pastor, and then she ends up in a similar situation with another young man. And I wondered if you could speak a little bit to this, because what it struck me in the best stories in this book is that you were trying to get at some kind of essential truths of life, but you were talking about it in a way that was— world weary isn't the right way, but I didn't think it came off as kind of moralizing or didactic. It was like some, I finished up some of these stories and I was like, huh, that is actually how things go. And the characters were warned about this and they didn't listen or pay attention. But That is actually how things go in in people's lives. And I think that's a real balancing act, honestly, that that writers have to do, because I think that can come off as very preachy. And that wasn't the way these these stories came off, despite the fact that it has church in the title of the book. (laughs) Uh, So I wondered if you could speak a little to that, because, you know, the book, we haven't really gotten to this, and, you know, FCC rules do preclude us from putting some of the words in this book on the air, but, you know, some of the sections in this book are pretty dirty. Uh, They're they're pretty hot and heavy, and... um, (laughs) You know, I, I don't think anybody uh, would be scandalized by that. I don't. I don't think it's uh, pornographic per se.
0: Oh, it's how people talk. Yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: but you know what I'm saying. I, again, and I think there's a there's a line on that because I think you know sometimes yeah. you could tip into one side is the Hallmark romance, yeah. and the other side is Pornhub. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. And, yeah. and I think you were kind of. <laughs> On that line of of no, this is really how people talk to one another. So I wonder mm-hmm. if, if you could go into that a little bit for our listeners.
0: Yeah, I say it like it's simple, but it, it's not. It, yeah. That was really <laughs> a feature. No,
1: I, I, I really this is something I think all of us noticed about the book because you know when we picked it yeah. up again, you know we're we're three white schmoes here in in Chicago <laughs> and like whoa, this is kind of a dirty book. And then we're you know you're reading, you know what I mean? We're, and we're reading it, and we're like, no, you know I mean uh, this it, it isn't. You know what I mean? It it's yeah. it's an honest book yeah which i think is um in a way so much harder to do because you're putting the, the author has to put so much of herself out there in the book you know what i mean i think you have to be much yeah. more exposed yeah. and i think it's much easier to write you know um pornographic cut lines not like i might have had a job with playboy at one time where i wrote girl copy or anything <laughs> like that but it, enough of me if you could <laughs> maybe go into that
3: yeah, you know, um, so, I, I, you know, I will keep us on the air and say one of the funniest observations that someone who uh, is uh, a black man because um, I notice it's the black men that usually talk uh, most about the sex in the book more so than than women. Um, And so one of my friends wrote, uh, he was sharing my book on Facebook and he's like, there is a lot of hunching in this book. And hunching is such a Southernism, you know, and we grew up talking about hunching and, um, and I love that. And he was like, you know, come for the hunching and stay for like these, you know, really deep, thoughtful, um, provocative, you know, questions and, and dilemmas and things like that. And so you know, by definition, you know, when I knew I was looking at the Black women's sex in the Black church, I knew it was going to be provocative. Um, But I'm never interested in titillation for the sake of titillation. Like, I just find that really trite. And so I want want to provoke and to stir, but in a way that, you know, sort of Um, comprehensive, you know, that it's not just like, ooh, and pointing, but ooh, pointing, laughing, thinking, wondering, asking yourself, well, what would I do? You know, or finding yourself unsure um, about some of the choices that these characters make. And, you know, is it so easy to condemn? Have I ever, you know, hopefully, hopefully that uh, it would spark people to Um, ask hard questions, and ultimately questioning this idea of freedom and agency. You know, are people really free just because they're doing something that's really provocative and gratuitous? Is that really freedom just because you can do it? Um, But also just looking at the roots of why people do the things that they do. So I wanted there to be some layers. And I think that that's sort of what keeps the book from being completely pornographic and just about hunching, um, are the layers that I, I it, it sounds like you guys picked up on, so I'm excited about that. Well, yeah,
1: and in, in, the, in the short segment that we we just played, you know, Eula is in, in bed with her lover and mm-hmm. the, the segment we just played is, is her lover is talking about how, um, She's going to join the church softball team. You know, she's forty yeah. years old, and and it's time for her to get a husband and a man. And, and and Eula's saying, you know, I'm I'm actually happy with you. I'm not unhappy. And then there's a passage where it it turns out, um, you know, that that Eula, uh, who is both a, a Sunday school teacher and a, and a biology teacher, is a virgin at forty. You know, this this woman's lover doesn't even think of herself as not a virgin, despite having this long term relationship. So I, you know, that to me was a, a pretty fascinating thing that really encapsulated I think a lot of the kind of shame Mm -hmm. and self-delusion I think sometimes people go through and and to me it it was a it was a very it it riveted me and and grabbed me right from the start
3: yeah that's and those are the layers you know the uh, the fear the guilt the shame and what those things how they cause people to contort themselves to reconcile being very, very human with what the church expects and what the church teaches. And I might add, um, teaches um, with a double standard, you know, because there are double standards for men than for women. And, we, and that shows up in the book as well. Um, I think about Pastor Neely in... Um, in Peach Cobbler, if that affair that he was having ever came to light, um, you know, the the woman he was involved with, you know, she could never show her face in that church again. But, you know, the saints would forgive him and say, you know, the devil is always busy and he could, uh, you know, atone and then keep going. He would not lose his job. Uh,
2: There was a, the name of the story is escaping me. The one that took place, uh, well, the folks were, family members were in hospice.
3: Oh, Oh. not Daniel.
2: Yeah. So I wanted to talk about that story and I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to have a spoiler here because it's a, it's a fantastic story, but what I, you know, when I read that story for me, I I saw, it was a story about grief and, um, I, I mentioned this quite a bit on the show. I, my brother died from ALS and I watched him, you know, go through that. And, uh, when you're grieving like that, especially when someone's in hospice, I feel like you'll do anything to feel better. Mm -hmm. And and so, like, for me, like, when I was reading that, I wasn't thinking, like, oh, these people are – there's depraved. yeah or something <laughs> right. wrong. there's something wrong with them like these people are going through intense grief and they don't know how to do anything about it and in america we like to make everything easy to get through you know mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. the, what is it the six stages or whatever oh, oh the, the, yeah. craft the five stages five of grief five stages of grief yeah, stages yeah, of gr- yeah. that, that's not true like that grieving is a messy sloppy yes. all over the place uh process. Uh, process and yeah. the emotions that come out are nuts. Like I mean, you you would do things that you would never think about
1: doing at any other right. time.
3: Yeah. That's right. Uh, and we hide it. We hide it because that's not the acceptable way to grieve. And now we've got more hiding and now we've got more shame and more secrets.
1: Yeah, and of course and just to follow on with that, you know, you mentioned grief. We we rarely talk about that in terms of popular culture. Oh, yeah. You know, the one th- taboo that was on television, it was broken by Twin Peaks was when you saw a father who lost his daughter, they grieved over like twelve episodes of that TV show and it was pretty unusual you know yeah. what i mean that that we had never happened particularly in a you know even a, a soap opera the and
2: parallel it, I drew was uh and i <laughs> i'm not recommending this for everyone but the Antichrist by Elias van trier and it's, it involved yeah a, mm-hmm. it involved a um a, a death of a child and sexuality to go through the grieving process, then it goes completely off the rails. But, um, but I, what I wanted to say, though, is even though, you know, we are talking about these are, you know, different communities, different worlds, I could totally relate to that situation because I would have done anything mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. make myself feel better, even though there probably wasn't a way to do that. So I, I just, I, I have to commend that that was a really, um, and I didn't look at it, like, from the sex, you know, the sex point mm-hmm. of view. I was looking at it from, like, these people are, are in deep, Pain, yes. and they're unable to, um you know, get you know, feel these uh,
0: emotions. They weren't unable
1: to process it. Yes, but it. you could yes. look
0: at it from the sex point of view if you wanted, to, with the, the layers coming, in because that is part of the story. The, what what their experience of the sex was like for each person in that situation, each yeah. person grieved. Yeah.
1: This is a good place to stop real quick and remind everybody that they are listening to WLPN, and we want to remind people of the folks that make this station possible. When we come back after this short break, we're actually going to hear another segment from uh, Desha Filia's book. We're going to hear a segment from Peach Cobbler, once again, thanks to Shannon Van Volt, thanks to Rob Mazurek. When we come out of the break, we're going to be talking again with Disha Filia. Her new book is called The Secret, Live of Ch- Secret Lives excuse me, of Church Ladies. It's out now from West Virginia University Press. This is I-94.
4: And now, back to I 94 on Lumpin' Radio. I peeked around the corner. My mother had sat down at the table across from Pastor Neely. She couldn't see me peeking, but Pastor Neely suddenly looked up from the cobbler right at me. I quickly moved out of sight, bracing myself, but instead of ratting me out, Pastor Neely asked my mother a question. Why won't you let the girl go to the party? I peeked around the corner again. My mother sighed. Because I like to keep to myself and she needs to learn to keep to herself too. It's better that way. You go accepting invitations then people expect an invitation in return. Then you got people coming in your house looking at what you have and what you don't have. And the next thing you know your business is all over town. My mother ran her fingertips along the edge of the table and smiled to herself. And I'm sure you can understand not wanting to have your business all over town. Pastor Neely didn't say anything. He just took another bite of cobbler and shook his head. And besides, my mother said, I'm trying to raise her to be satisfied with what she has. I know that little girl Latasha's mama and her daddy went to school with them. They've always been flashy, like to show off. He used to drive her around in his daddy's Lincoln until his daddy bought him a Mustang. At 16 years old, they got money and all that come with it. So you know Latasha don't want for nothing and that a birthday party is going to be over the top. I don't know these people, Pastor Neely said. But if the Lord has blessed them and they want to celebrate their child's birthday and invite your child to share in it, I don't see the problem. It was strange hearing Pastor Neely talk about the Lord outside of his pulpit. Instead of that scary, booming voice, he sounded like a regular person. A regular person who might convince my mother to let me go to Latasha Wilson's birthday party. I crossed my fingers on both hands. My mother sat up straighter in her chair. When she spoke, it was slowly, as if she were trying to choose her words carefully. They can raise their child however they see fit. But I'm not going to raise mine to go through life expecting it to be sweet, when for her, it ain't going to be. The sooner she learns to accept what is and what ain't, the better. She gets a taste of that sweetness. She's going to want it so bad she'll grow up and sell up for crumbs Pastor merely glanced at me again, shook his head, and ate the last bit of cobbler. I ducked back out of sight and uncrossed my fingers. My eyes filled with tears again. Without looking, I knew my mother would whisk away the empty cobbler pan, the pastor's plate, and the spoon. I knew she would dunk them in the soapy dishwater in the sink, like she always did, so that I couldn't even sneak a taste of the remnants eh? You got the best cobbler in the world right here, I heard Pastor Lily say. Natasha Wilson's birthday party invitation apparently forgotten.
1: Hey, welcome back to I-94. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hello. And we are speaking with the author, Disha Filia. She is the author of The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. It is out now from West Virginia. It was also nominated for the National Book Award. And in fact, just before you heard my voice, you heard a short segment from her short story, Peach Cobbler. And in fact, uh, Disha and the group, we were actually just talking about this story beforehand uh, because we were mentioning how... The, uh, one of the lead characters in the story, the pastor, is having an affair with the mother of the protagonist of the story. The protagonist then, um, Disha, I believe I can safely say she is kind of thrown into a difficult situation where she has to go tutor the pastor's oh, yeah. child. And then um, she is a young woman and gets involved in a sexual relationship of her own. Um, the segment that I chose uh, was actually basically her mother telling her why she didn't want to go to a birthday party. Uh, and basically it is because the mother is somewhat ashamed of her own life and where she is. And she is thinking that it is better for her daughter to learn to accept early the things she has rather than the things she can't get. And I, I thought that was a very interesting, very kind of class riven look. Um, at, at this family, and I wondered if you could talk about that because I don't think we often think of Americans and American families and black American families as being kind of class conscious and part of different classes. And that, that really is running through the book. The mother is very aware of at least her perception of where she is in this society. And it's obvious that she feels serious shame, and you can tell that by her, her words and by her actions as well. Uh, and Talk if you could talk a little bit about this because this seems to be something that you know in the story I think was very damaging to to the young daughter.
3: Yes, um, you know our inheritances, right? We inherit so many things um, from our parents, including trauma, including things like shame, and um, and then we uh, have the the, the burden to decide of you know how we're going to navigate that and are we going to pass it on you know so we can assume that you know there was something happening in the mother's life you know when she was the daughter and then what was passed down to her and um, and so I wanted to look at you know how we're handed things, Um, as children by our families of origin and then you know what do we do with it and so not only was she handed sort of this mindset or at least you know her mother tried to you know force this on her but then she was literally handed the burden of keeping her mother's secret this affair that she was having um, and and put in a very impossible situation where keeping that secret was just paramount Um, and so you know, there's this weight on the shoulders of a child. And I think we can all um, relate to that in various degrees. And so it, to you know, to your point with it being um, a matter of class, I think that's one way you know we we carry that class burden. You know, are you taught to be, you know, proud and striving to you know break into the middle class um, and 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 be upwardly mobile? Or are you taught to, you know, just sort of keep your head down, and um, you know, this is sort of your lot in life? Either way, comes with tremendous pressure that you know we have to navigate that we didn't ask for. You know, none of us asked for any of the stuff that we're saddled with. So, you know, I wanted to um, explore that again within the confines of where is what what is the church's role? You know, how how is the church implicated? in what we pass on um to our our children and so um you know and uh, and there was an element of um class dynamics in that we know that the mother was receiving money from the pastor yeah so that further complicated their um you know their adulterous uh relationship
1: and that's not revealed until much later in the story Right. So to be to be you know uh, that which added another layer. I mean the the daughter doesn't know that the daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other thing, by the way, just to talk about this one more second before Mike jumps in here, you know you also wove in food and the, and the power mm-hmm. of food and and memory into the story with with the peach cobbler that the daughter um, lost well, that, after. That's
2: an unforgettable moment yeah. for me when she was eating the peach cobbler out of the garbage because. Well, for one, my parents were of the type, if you didn't finish your meal, you couldn't have dessert and it would get thrown in the garbage. Mm-hmm. And I actually have eaten dessert out of the garbage before, but that was it. just mm-hmm. when I was reading that, the uh, because it was like this forbidden uh, forbidden fruit almost, I, I guess that's yeah. an apt analogy. But um, what, that was some. when I read that there's, every once in a while you read something in a book that you won't forget. It just kind of like burned into your brain and it's like that. Moment when she was eating out of the garbage, and then her mom comes out and she was a little bit buzzed, uh, nothing, or, or maybe a lot of it buzzed. Yeah, um, you know that was that. That's that's gonna stick in my memory. Like I will, I will remember that. It, yeah. you know Whenever I talk about uh, when I want to talk about uh, different scenes in books, that really stick with me. I, I
0: actually thought that was the
1: personally for me that was the standout story in the book.
0: Yeah, that I, that was one of them. Jael was another. Uh, in, in both of those stories, you're it kind of reminded me of science fiction in a way where like you you're forced to look at familiar things uh about the world in an unfamiliar way so you're looking mm-hmm. at uh, the hypocrisy of the adult world from from these children's point of view and um, yeah. you know one one of the, when you were talking earlier Jamie about uh, hypocrisy and 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 Things not seeming like a, a hallmark plot line. It's just the way life goes. One of the things you, I thought you portrayed really well, was the messiness and the um, blurriness of hypocrisy. Um, a lot of these children see their authority figures you know, keeping secrets. Um, you know,
2: she thought she saw God in the pastor. You know, that's, yeah. that was that conversation that happens after the
0: right after the well, and and then they find themselves having to make their own difficult decisions. Um, you know, Giles. You, people should all read that story. I won't give anything away about it. I thought that story was fantastic. But um, did you think about uh, generational authority when when you were writing this book? You know that how how church was the legitimate authority a, a couple generations mm-hmm. ago, and mm-hmm. how that slipped off a little bit and. I mean what what fills the void now does anything fill mm-hmm. the void and I know you have two children I'm not sure how old they are um I don't yeah. how, how do you handle that in your your life as a parent
3: Yes so the generational um thread that's you know throughout these stories was just second nature to me I was raised in a household by my mother and my grandmother um and I was sent to church But they didn't go to church until I was in college. And I, you know, had some questions about that. And I remember my grandmother once saying, oh, I'm going to go to church when I get myself right. And even as a kid, I thought, well, that's odd because I thought, you know, you go to church to get yourself right. (laughs) And it was only you know, into my adulthood. And honestly, really this year with the book coming out and me talking about this so much, because, you know, as a kid, there's so much you just take for granted. And I really had to spend some time thinking, now, wait a minute, why did they send me? Why was that so important to them? Mm -hmm. But they didn't go. And it's because they were dealing with a lot of the things that, um, you know, these characters were dealing with in terms of fear and shame and guilt that I wasn't, fully privy to, but, you know, when you kind of piece together people's lives as you become an adult, um, and, you know, both my mother and grandmother have since passed away, so there are many questions I'm not able to ask them. but when they were here, I wasn't as curious about them, um, and, you know, because there's a whole window where you don't see your parents as people. You know, they're just your parents. Absolutely and not. so these stories are kind of a way that I, a lens through which I can imagine certain things, um, uh, not just for my mother and my grandmother, but for all of the women um, in and out of the church who were just so impactful in my um, early years, not they didn't even have to directly be involved in my life, but I just spent a lot of time watching, um, women and especially women in the church and wondering about them. And when I was a pre adolescent and, and, uh, adolescent, you know, wondering about their sex lives and masturbation and things like that. Um, and, and just being really curious. And so they live in my imagination and live in, in that uh, very nostalgic place. And as for my children and sort of where we land with all of this, um, it, it's been tricky because I, at around thir- age 35, I stopped going to church. And um, my um, ex-husband and co-parent is a regular church goer and has always been, his father was a pastor. Um, so my girls have had this sort of mixed bag experience um, because when I stopped going to church was around the same time that um, that their dad and I got divorced. And so with me, they didn't go to church. With him, they went to church. And so that's sort of been happening off and on um, most of their lives. Um, they are now 17 and 22. Um, but the great thing I feel about the the thing that I like about that is that they, I see them grappling with these questions, but openly, that they know they can question, they know they don't have to hide things, they know that there's nothing for them to be uh, ashamed or feel guilty of, they don't have to worry about going to hell, you know. So we've just had different conversations than the ones that shaped me, you know. Um, because of you know how my girls grew up, we had questions about. <clears throat> sorry, that's my dog. <laughs> mm. Questions about heaven and hell, um, because they had friends who were being bar, um, bar mitzvahed, and you know, well, what does this mean? And are they got, you know? So you know, they were able to reconcile things at a very young age and in an environment where their questions were encouraged. Um, And so I hope that I've spared them, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, breaking that cycle, like we were talking about that, the things that you inherit, that, you know, I hope they haven't, I don't think they've inherited the, the messiness that I did and that so many Black women have inherited.
2: I, I think this, my question too can tie into this well with the. Um, my favorite story is uh, when Eddie, is it Levert comes?
3: Levert. Levert. Eddie Levert. Yeah.
2: When Eddie yeah. Levert, see, so we told you we're bad at pronunciation. When Eddie Levert <laughs> comes, um, and, uh, and this ties in with what we were talking about before it's family dynamics, it's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Rico the brother's reaction. Um, and I, I believe daughter is just known as daughter, correct? She doesn't, daughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, all these stories are, I, I think have the seam of how people interact with each other. And, you know, and when people become ill, that really changes dynamics because, uh, Oh yeah. Some people have to step up to the plate. Yep. Some people yeah. don't want to participate. And,
1: and that was in a couple other stories, too. You know, a- sister, you know, uh, writing to the absent sister and dealing with the grief. Snowfall, as well, about the mothers that are absent and stuff like that. I mean, that's a thread, I think, that runs through the entire book.
2: Yeah, it's it's about human interaction, and, and that's when when I think people talk about this book, you know, being dirty. It's a disservice to the, the, the themes that run through it, and it's all about dynamics and human interaction. And I w- w- when you were writing this... Um, I know these stories weren't – they, they were published at separate times, correct, if I read correctly, some of them?
3: Three of them were published before the collection came out. Okay. And then I think maybe since the book came out, three more have been published, um, but only three have been published previously.
2: So, so it, I, I think it, it speaks to you as a writer that you've been able to – I mean, this, this these are all about human interactions. and Is, is this mm-hmm. something – you were thinking about, or is it just when you're writing the stories, this is what naturally mm-hmm. occurred? I,
3: you know, I had to think about this a lot. The more, you know, I have conversations about this book that, you know, when we were promoting it, it was like, here's a collection of stories about black women's sex in the black church. And then I realized, you know, I've been writing fiction for 20 years, and what I feel like I've been writing is not about church ladies, even though the characters are. I've been writing about dissatisfied women, and I mean, and if you all, you know, the three of you, if you're in relationships with women, where whether it's romantic or familial, you know that if a woman is dissatisfied, <laughs> you've got endless stories, you've got oh, endless conflicts. Yeah,
0: no comment. <laughs> you know,
3: and so... Um, you know, and, and so it just the, the, the sight of it and, and sort of the, the, the root of a lot of the dissatisfaction uh, for these characters can be traced, you know, back to very narrow uh, hip, um, hypocritical teachings by the church. But to your point, um, you know, it is it shows up as they are in relationship with themselves, as they are in relationship with parents and siblings, as they are in relationship with other black women Um and so it plays out in these different ways. And so it's this idea of dissatisfaction um, and, and sort of fighting against something. And so I imagine them all trying to get free or become freer in some way. And so the people in their lives you know, are either obstacles or they're conduits or they're a little bit of both where they're in transition. Um, and so that I wanted to look at those points of engagement as you know, women in particular are trying to get free, you know, what do we bump up, who and what do we bump up against? Um, and I think that's part of what made the stories also have this appeal that is universal.
1: We've been speaking today with uh, Deesha Philya. Her new book is The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. It's out now from West Virginia. Deisha, we're running out of time, unfortunately. It's been great to have you on the show. Thanks a lot for doing this. Real quickly before Thank we you. let you go, um, you know, first of all, folks, you can find more of her writing. You've been well published everywhere. Uh, we actually were both at ESPN. I think you were on the undefeated vertical.
3: Is that right? I published there as a freelancer, I think three times, and I had a great experience working with them. Yeah, and
1: of course you've been in the Times and the Post, and you're well published all over the place. But what is coming up for you after this? Is that novel going to yeah, be I mean, what's going stuff? on?
3: <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, you know, I started that novel in 2007, and it's going to look very different. Um, I, you know, the experience of writing the short story collection helped me to get unstuck, helped me to focus. Help me to understand where my interest really lies, and and it really is in relationships um, between women. And um, there is a church lady at the center of this novel. Um, I'm still on that, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, and I can also share that um, there has been interest in adapting uh, these stories. Uh, Hollywood interest. So stay tuned for oh, that. No. I can't say much more. <laughs> Thank Good, you. I'm great. really excited. Um, And so, um, looking forward to when I can talk more about that. Wonderful,
1: awesome. So, once again, we've been speaking with Disha Philyaw. Her book is *The Secret Lives of Church Ladies*. Again, it's out from West Virginia. It was also up for the National Book Award. Uh, It did not win, but you know, it's great to be nominated. Congratulations on that. Absolutely, thank you. It is available at fine bookstores and fine libraries everywhere. Am I right, Jeremy?
2: Correct. Uh, Oh, and. Disha also got Chicago Public Library's Best of the Best for
3: 2020. Yes. I did. I
1: wonder if a certain co-host on this show might have had something to do with it. I don't know. <laughs> there's
3: a wait list. I was hyped to see the wait list. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's there's been a lot of buzz about this book. I mean, if, you
2: know, if, for a collection of short stories, it came out from a university press. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. is a like book. yeah, that's another thing. I mean, the press. It, and I think. That says something to you, you know, writing for 20 years, because when this came out, it's a yeah, damn it got good book. You yeah. Thank so, you. Yeah, I mean, when <laughs> I
1: flipped it so over, much. when we were doing the credits, I was like, and the book is from West Virginia? I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I'm it's looking totally. for FSG or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> Uh, not to,
2: not to discredit you. university presses. No, they're people. great. Yeah, because no, no. yeah, we do it's a just lot. Just unusual. Yeah, we do a lot of uh, very unusual. A lot of shows with the yeah. university. So,
1: Disha, thanks so much again thank for you. joining thanks, us. Disha. Thank I, you all, I, I ninety four listeners. We'll be back next. Well, we won't be back next week because it's the holidays. That's, That's right. And this is our final show That's of uh, twenty twenty. It's the yes, final it. show for season four. So, Disha, you're closing out season four. Yeah. Listeners, we'll see everybody in season five. Thanks so much for joining us right here on Lumpin' Radio.
4: Rhonda and I are not without black women friends in this city. There's Faith, Stacy, Melanie, Kelly, but friendship is not the same as history, just as bone is not the same as its marrow. These friends, they tell us that this city of iron and steel and cold is better, safer than where we come from. They imagine where we come from and see Confederate flags and rednecks and dusty dudes with gold grills rapping about bitches and hoes. They don't seem home when we lie in bed at night and remember when. Rhonda doesn't see home either, just sepia moments and sepia people, artifacts frozen in amber, like putting the well-worn photo album back on the shelf or turning off the TV after watching Good Times on TV Land. She drifts off to sleep so easily, leaving me alone to fend off my thoughts. Last night my thoughts won. I stared at the ceiling and thought about my mother lying in her bed, a quilt and a portable heater sufficient for winter in her world. I haven't spoken to her since October, but even then we pretty much just checked in to make sure the other person was alive. We talked about the lady's auxiliary fish fry and the hat she bought for Women's Day at church, which elderly neighbor's son got sent to prison, third strike, for selling drugs, whether or not I like my job at the university, yes. And then the usual tension returned and the regret we felt for calling, for answering, was palpable. On these rare calls, my mother never asked about Rhonda. I stared at the ceiling wondered if my mother still refers to Rhonda as some girl she met on the internet when she talks to Miss Marietta and her other friends about us. She knows Rhonda's name because I told her. I told her everything about me she claimed she didn't know. An ignorance belied by her questions, years of endless questions about the nameless boys who never called, never took me to prom, never gave her a different reason to be ashamed of me. My mother knew Rhonda's name and she refused to say it refused to meet her, refused to do anything but pray for my soul. As I walked out her front door for the last time eight months ago, she hurled the words at my back. Running off from here with some girl you met on the internet. Who raised you? Lily, you're all I've got in this world. How could my mother's words just keep right on spinning without me in it? Maybe it hadn't. It. Maybe she was lying in bed thinking about me too, worrying. Maybe. Rhonda's mother had put her out as a teenager. They hadn't spoken in 20 years. Rhonda had her for a while, turned 18, moved to the city, and got a job at the post office. She saved up for an apartment of her own and vowed never again to be anywhere she wasn't wanted. When I met her, we were 30, and she'd just bought a house. We'd visit back and forth between her town and mine for a few years until I got the job at the university. She didn't hesitate when I asked her to move here with me. You are home, Lily," she'd said. And at first I didn't catch what she meant. Then I did. When we first moved here, I believed she could be right. I believed that we were all the home either of us could ever need. Through the end of a mild summer, through a gorgeous red gold fall, I believed it. And then last night, after an hour or so of staring at the ceiling, I did something I never do. I woke Rhonda up, and I asked her, do you ever think about us moving back south, back home? Earlier this year, a cousin had told Rhonda that whenever people asked about her, her mother told them she was probably dead somewhere, even though the cousin had let her know that Rhonda was alive and well. In the dark, I couldn't make out Rhonda's face, but in the ensuing silence, I imagined her blinking her way out of the sleep fog. Then she said, Aretha, I already told you where home is. For me. is Lumpin' Radio's Books and Literature program airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Disha Filial, author of the National Book Award nominated The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, out now from West Virginia University Press. This episode completed Season 4 and first aired on December 17, 2020. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, Music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye 94org For more information on Lumpin Radio, visit lumpinradio.com.